welcome to Legal LGBTQ Plus Podcast. My name is Shane Filcher, I use all pronouns, and I am the Executive Director of the LGBT Bar Association and Foundation of Greater New York. This is the joint episode of October-November Law Notes and a corresponding episode of the podcast, and I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Emeritus Art Leonard, Chief Editor and Writer of Legal's LGBTQ Plus Law Notes. Law Notes is the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments both in the United States and abroad affecting LGBTQ plus people. I want to remind our listeners that the views expressed on our podcast are not an appropriate substitute for legal advice and may or may not reflect the views of the Bar Association and or its foundation. Professor Leonard, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, And uh, I have to say, This issue of Law Notes, this combined October-November issue, is the biggest issue since, I would think, the the summer before the Obergefell case, when when we had marriage litigation going on everywhere in the country. And so uh, we just had exploded. I I think our largest issue was over 80 pages during that period, and that was for one month. Uh, But uh, so much has been going on, and as... We've uh, indicated in the past, eventually, all of these transgender issues that are being litigated all over the place are going to end up before the Supreme Court. And now today, we're going to discuss the imminence of that happening. Well, that's an excellent transition to kick us off. We are going to be looking back at some of the things that happened in uh, November, October. But let's, let's jump right in with what's going on going forward with the October 2023 Supreme Court term. So what do we need to know about some of the pending cert petitions that have been filed and may impact LGBTQ plus people? Okay, what we need to know, as of now, there is nothing on the Supreme Court's merits docket for this year directly affecting LGBT rights. And by merits docket, I mean cases that have been granted review. So they're now lining up and being scheduled for oral argument and, and briefing on the merits and everything. We don't have any LGBTQ cases yet, but we have three pending cert petitions, one of which has been pending since last spring, that uh, will directly raise major issues. Uh, And uh, all of them affect uh, transgender rights, but also to some extent uh, LGB rights as well, uh, because they call for interpretation of the Equal Protection Clause, they call for interpretation of Title IX, Uh, They call for uh, all sorts of issues about healthcare and what states can and cannot regulate. I mean, everything sort of intersects in these three cert petitions. And it's actually five cert petitions because one of them uh, has two different uh, petitioners, actually three different petitioners, because the federal government is a petitioner in the case as well, the uh, Scrimetti case. So... Starting with the with the earliest, uh, a case that I'm sure we talked about on the podcast when it was first decided by the Ninth Circuit, maybe even when it was first decided by the district court, uh, Tingley versus Ferguson. Uh, Brian Tingley is a counselor, uh, family counselor, uh, who uh, likes to do conversion therapy if he can get the chance, but he practices in the state of Washington, which has outlawed conversion therapy for minors. They've uh, labeled it as unprofessional practice. He could lose his license and so forth. Uh, He uh, brought a lawsuit against 
the Attorney General of the State of Washington, Robert Ferguson, as the lead defendant, uh, seeking a ruling that this violated his First Amendment rights. And Equal Rights Washington, which is the statewide LGBTQ civil rights group, intervened in the lawsuit to support Attorney General Ferguson in defending the statute. So the statute itself, as, as I said, is similar to uh, statutes that have passed in many states by now, uh, and some localities as well. Uh, and they take different approaches to it, but most of them say it is an unprofessional conduct that can subject a licensed healthcare provider to professional discipline if they provide, uh, if they provide uh, so-called conversion therapy, which uh, is sometimes referred to as sexual orientation change efforts. But I think conversion therapy also has been uh, attempted on transgender people to make them non-transgender as opposed to gay or bi people to make them straight. Uh, and it basically doesn't work. Uh, that's, that's the consensus, the broad consensus to major professional associations in the healthcare field, uh, that it doesn't work and that it can cause serious psychological harm to the people upon whom it is practiced, especially minors who are particularly vulnerable on the issue of sexual identity and sexual orientation. Uh, so the uh, district court rejected uh, Mr. Tingley's argument that this violates his First Amendment rights on the ground that the statute is regulating professional conduct. It's not just regulating speech. Now, the fact that the conduct takes the form of speech or that speech is the major implement in uh, applying this therapy. And I, every time I use the, I, the word therapy, put it in quotation marks, because therapy is supposed to make people better, right? Something that's therapeutic is supposed to improve your, your condition. And uh, the general consensus among professionals in this field is that the performance of sexual orientation change efforts does not make things better, it makes things worse. Uh, and the, uh, the Ninth Circuit agreed with the district court on that. They said, this is not a regulation of speech. Now, at first, when these bans were being uh, enacted back in the middle of the last decade, uh, there was a pretty quick consensus among courts that the state could do this. The state could outlaw or, or render professional misconduct, uh, the provision of this kind of quote unquote therapy. And we had two leading cases out of the Third Circuit, King versus Governor of New Jersey, and out of the Ninth Circuit, Pickup versus Brown. Uh, Brown, uh, that's the uh, California ban on uh, conversion therapy. And uh, it looked like there was going to be an emerging consensus among the federal courts that this was not a regulation of speech. Uh, but then along came a Supreme Court case dealing with a totally unrelated issue. The unrelated issue being whether the state of California was violating the First Amendment rights of the people who operate these pregnancy clinics where they try to talk people out of having abortions, et cetera. Uh, California and regulating them said, if you are purporting to provide maternal reproductive care, you must advise your clients about the availability of abortion in California. And the Supreme Court held that violated the First Amendment rights of the clinic operators. And in the course of that opinion, which uh, Justice Thomas 
wrote for the court, he said that professional speech is no different than other speech. And he specifically cited these two leading cases about uh, bans on conversion therapy as examples of where courts might be going wrong, applying a different standard to regulation of professional speech as opposed to political speech or other forms of speech, thus casting some doubt about those decisions. Now, this was really dicta as to them. This wasn't holding as to them. And, and there's certainly a big distinction between what California was doing telling people you have to tell them about these resources, as opposed to other states telling practitioners, you may not perform this act, which involves speech, but which is, uh, you are purporting to provide it as a form of therapy. So that's professional practice. But uh, the 11th Circuit seized upon that in a case involving uh, a local ordinance in Boca Raton, Florida, which prohibited the uh, professional performance of conversion therapy within the city limits or the county limits. Uh, the 11th Circuit said this is a free speech case, that you are uh, trying to clamp shut the mouth of the therapist and say, you may not say this, you may not say that. Uh, so now there's a circuit split. With the third and fourth circuits on one side, or rather the third and ninth circuits on one side and the 11th Circuit on the other side. Uh, so uh, now with the state of Washington uh, taking the same side as the third and ninth circuits, actually the, the ninth circuit reaffirming its position on this from Pickup versus Brown. Uh, if anything, the, uh, the circuit split is enhanced in that sense. There are more circuits weighing in and there's not unanimity uh, and the 11th circuit decision uh, may already uh, be picking up support in other conservative circuits if the, if the question comes before them. So they're knocking at the door and Alliance Defending Freedom is representing Mr. Tinkley. Alliance Defending Freedom has a great track record of getting cases to the Supreme Court. Uh, so uh, the questions presented on the petition are two. First is whether a law that censors conversations between counselors and clients as quote, unprofessional conduct violates the free speech clause. And the second question, whether a law that primarily burdens religious speech, because Tingley has said that he is religiously motivated. He feels a mission to perform conversion therapy that he's morally compelled by his religious beliefs. Whether a law that primarily burdens religious speech is neutral and generally applicable. And if so, whether the court should overrule Employment Division versus Smith. I mean, they had to throw that in because ADF is on a crusade together with most of the Christian right to overrule Employment Division versus Smith, a 1990 Supreme Court case that says that uh, Neutral laws of general application, which incidentally burden free exercise of religion, are not subject to strict scrutiny under the First Amendment. Uh, in fact, they're, they're subject only to rational basis review, not even heightened scrutiny. Uh, and they've been out to get Employment Division versus Smith overruled practically since it was announced by the court. But at the time it was announced by the court, it was controversial. It was a divided court and some of the dissenters were liberals who thought the decision didn't give enough weight to free exercise of religion at the time. 
it was many of the religious freedom groups that are now on the barricades defending employment division versus Smith who were outraged at it <laughs> originally. So uh, it's interesting how the, the sides change when the issues change. Uh, but uh, I think there are several members of the court that that second question was really red meat to the conservatives because there were at least four members of the court, I would think, who might jump at the chance in an appropriate case to overrule Blunt Division versus Smith. So I think there's a good chance uh, that this one will be granted cert. Now, this cert petition was filed in March and it still hasn't been ruled on by the court. Part of that is because when states get sued, when there's a petition in the Supreme Court against a state by an individual, the state's attorney general's office always asks for an extension of time to file a reply brief. Uh, so the reply briefs weren't in until the middle of the summer. They got extensions of time. And the Supreme Court doesn't decide on cert petitions once they've held their last regular uh, conference of the term in June. They don't hold another conference on cert petitions till September, the end of September, as they're approaching the first Monday in October, which is when the term starts. Uh, so this was first circulated to the court for consideration at a conference for the long conference, as it's usually called during the last week of September when they consider the mountain of cert petitions that have piled up over the summer and they haven't gotten to it yet. They keep, it keeps rolling over from conference to conference to conference. And every Monday I check to see if cert's been denied in, uh, in this case and the other cases I'm tracking, but this is the, the one that is most pressing. Uh, and the fact that they haven't ruled on it yet may be that there's quite an argument going on within the court as to whether they want to take this up. Now, there is a circuit split, and the circuit split involves cases with a lot of population. Uh, circuits, and Florida is huge in terms of population. California is huge. And the Ninth Circuit, of course, covers a lot of states, a lot of territory. So uh, I think there is some question uh, for the court here. I think it's a significant question for the court. So we'll see what happens. That's the first. The second is a cert petition that was filed in October. The case is Metropolitan School District of Martinsville, Indiana versus AC. AC is a transgender student who wants to use a restroom consistent with their gender identity. Uh, and uh, this is Indiana, it's in the Seventh Circuit. And by coincidence, the Seventh Circuit was the first circuit to rule on this issue. In Whitaker versus Kenosha Unified School District, you, some people may remember this, people with long memories, from 2017, where they ruled that a school district violated Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972 and the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment by forbidding a transgender boy from using the boys' restroom facilities at the district's middle school. Uh, in the Martinsville case, the district court in Indiana was of course bound by the Seventh Circuit's opinion in Whitaker, so they ruled uh, against the school district. Uh, the Seventh Circuit agreed that is, the new panel decision agreed with the old panel decision. And uh, what the difference was in, in terms of the posture of what's going on here, two significant events. 
that I think uh, specifically reinforce the Seventh Circuit in its view here. One is the Bostock decision. Because back when this case was first decided, uh, a, a circuit court was going out on a limb to say that Title IX bans discrimination because of gender identity. Because there was no Supreme Court precedent. But now with Bostock, we have Justice Gorsuch's opinion say, stating that it was impossible to discriminate because of a person's transgender status without discriminating at least in part because of their sex. And that was the key to courts and to the Biden administration taking the position in many cases now and guidances from federal agencies and the EEOC and others uh, to say that uh, laws that ban discrimination because of sex also ban discrimination because of gender identity. Uh, so that was helping to reinforce the Whitaker decision. The other thing uh, that uh, had, had occurred was the 11th Circus decision in Adams versus School Board of St. John's County, which was the first federal court of appeals to rule the other way on restroom access for transgender students. Uh, and so in this case, the uh, council for, uh, for Metropolitan School District of Martinsville was arguing, well, the 11th Circuit has now refuted that earlier reasoning, has specifically disagreed with the Whitaker decision, uh, and you should follow them. And the uh, Seventh Circuit said, well, look, we've already decided this issue. We're gonna stand by what we decided. And they denied on-bank review, but one of the conservative judges on the circuit, uh, Frank Easterbrook, concurred with the decision to deny on bank review, but he wrote separately to say, look, the only reason I'm doing this, because I think the 11th Circuit decision has, has some merit to it. The only reason I'm doing this is because this is gonna to go to the Supreme Court. It's gonna be decided anyway. What we decide at this point is almost irrelevant because there's already a circuit split. Uh, there are already other circuits on record on this now. Uh, the third circuit, uh, the fourth circuit actually, uh, the, uh, the Gavin Grimm case, which people may remember, of the uh, transgender boy who wanted to use the boys' restroom his high school. Uh, the petitioner, the Martinsville School District, is represented. The petition was filed. Lead counsel, Paul Clement, former U.S. Solicitor General, who specializes in Supreme Court practice and who has a pretty good box score. Uh, when it comes to that. Uh, and the way he phrased the question presented, whether Title IX or the Equal Protection Clause dictate a single national policy that prohibits local schools from maintaining separate bathrooms based on students' biological sex. In other words, and, and Clement is following the same playbook here as Alliance Defending Freedom in the Tingley case. In framing your question, you make it a question that appears to answer itself. So here he's talking about uh, whether we have a single national policy and local schools can't adjust to local conditions. And uh, after all, uh, early in the history of Title IX, uh, the Department of Education issued a regulation saying that one of the exceptions to the ban on sex discrimination under Title IX in educational institutions was you can maintain 
separate restroom, locker room, et cetera, facilities and living arrangements for, you know, at the college level, we're talking about dormitories, things like that. You can separate the sexes. And they all argue, and somewhat persuasively, that at the time the regulation was adopted by sex, they were referring to biological sex. They weren't thinking about transgender issues back then when uh, the, uh, the regulation was issued. So who knows what's going to happen here? I think this is uh, a pretty easy case for the Supreme Court to grant cert on. And this is a heavily contested issue. They've turned it down in the past when there was unanimity. But now that there's a circuit split, I think they're likely to take it. Uh, then the third petition, which was uh, filed on November 1st, and so technically it should be in December issue of Law Notes, but since we were working on this combined October-November issue, when November 1st occurred, I figured included. Uh, this is a petition in LS versus Scarmetti and a petition in Doe v. Thornbury. Scarmetti is the case out of Tennessee. Thornbury is the case out of Kentucky. The question is, may a state make it a crime for a healthcare professional to perform gender-affirming treatment to a transgender minor? And this is an issue that's just been burning its way through the country, uh, partly because the Republican Party has made it a very much a, a partisan issue. I think every state that has adopted a ban on this is what you might call a red state when you talk about legislative and who controls the governorship, at least at the time they passed the law. Uh, so uh, in these cases, we have a departure from what looked out of the box, like a pretty straightforward issue. There are two constitutional claims that are generally made and a third that was made in one of these cases, which also strikes me as a very interesting issue. Uh, first, equal protection. Does it violate the equal protection clause to deny gender affirming care to transgender youth when the very same treatments are used to deal with other medical conditions on which there is no restriction. That is, when it is gender-affirming care to affirm someone's biological gender, no one has a problem with it. But when you pre present the same thing, puberty blockers or cross-sex hormones or surgical alteration, when you do it to assist someone in a transition to the gender that they identify with, then they're outlawing it. So you could argue that this is uh, a form of discrimination based on gender identity. And that puts front and center the question whether it violates the Equal Protection Clause to discriminate based on gender identity. And we do have some lower court authority on this. Uh, we, we even have a, an 11th Circuit case in an employment context. Uh, that ruled on an equal protection basis involving a state employee in the state of Georgia, uh, and, and which held that it was a form of sex discrimination to discriminate based on gender identity. And Bostock says the same thing. Uh, but Bostock, of course, says it in the, in the context of Title VII. And Justice Gorsuch, in his opinion for the court of Bostock, said, we are deciding the question presented to us, 
whether you can state a claim under Title VII for wrongful discharge on the basis of transgender status or sexual orientation. That's what we're deciding in this case. We're not deciding about restrooms. We're not deciding about what other statutes might have to say. We're just deciding this Title VII question. Uh, and of course, the Supreme Court is a court. They rule on actual cases of controversies and what they say on the controversy before them is holding and everything else you could say is dicta. But we look at the rationale of the court. Once again, uh, that uh, Justice Gorsuch said, it is impossible to discriminate based on transgender status without discriminating based on sex. They're just tied together. Uh, so, uh, this presents that question front and center. Then there's the question of the parents, because in these cases, uh, both the Tennessee case and the Kentucky case, the plaintiffs were suing by their parents because they're minors, they can't sue. And so you had to find, if you're looking for plaintiffs to challenge these laws, you had to find transgender kids who, whose parents support them in their seeking gender affirming care or at the very least don't want the state to preclude the possibility if they become convinced that it should be provided. So we have supportive parents here. And do the parents have the right to make this decision on behalf of their children to give consent? Now, most of the courts have fought shy on the surgery issue. And, and partly that's because uh, the World Professional Association for Transgender Healthcare, WPATH, which is the professional association that publishes guidelines that a lot of the courts have treated as a gold standard, although some don't. Some say that they're political more than scientific. But their guidelines say, in general, you should not do surgical alteration before age 18. But they don't think that the individual is uh, sufficiently mature to make this important decision on their own. Uh, to make it in a way that is uh, irreversible. Because once you do the surgery, it's pretty much irreversible. There are some aspects that you might be able to reverse, but it's sort of hard once you've done surgical alteration. But hormones, you can detransition with hormones. It depends how long you've been taking them, I suppose. But you can detransition. And puberty blockers, we are told that if you cut off the puberty blockers, then puberty ensues. A little delayed, but it ensues and it goes through its normal course. So that's not an irrevocable decision. Uh, and uh, the focus in this case, in these cases, has been on puberty blockers and hormones, because it is relatively rare for someone under eighteen to get surgical alteration. In most states, it's just not available uh, without any ban being enacted because people are following the WPF guidelines and they say only in the most extreme, extraordinary cases should there be a surgical alteration. Uh, so should the parents be able to give consent to this? Does it violate the parents' rights under the due process clause as a matter of liberty? And here we have to ask, is the Dobbs decision gonna have any effect ultimately? I mean, the, the approach to substantive due process in the Dobbs, the abortion decision by the Supreme Court, was to look historically at the time the 14th Amendment was adopted in trying to decide whether something was recognized as a fundamental right at that time. 
And on this issue of gender-affirming care, it didn't exist. So, uh, you know, it's, it, it, but, but on the other hand, parental rights in terms of health care, well, some of the earliest important substantive due process cases from the early 20th century involve uh, parental rights. Not necessarily parental rights on, on uh, this particular issue, but parental rights in general in terms of the right of parents to a certain degree of autonomy from the state in the matter of raising their kids, deciding what kind of education to give them, uh, whether to send them to a religious school or a secular school. Uh, this, the, I think they were overridden on vaccinations. <laughs> but, and now that's being contested pretty heavily. Uh, on, on whether parents uh, can be compelled to have their children vaccinated. Uh, quite an argument going on in, in many states on that. Uh, but parental rights. And in this case, the, uh, the Sixth Circuit didn't see that the parents' rights uh, overrode the state's interest in protecting minors. And, and that's how both Kentucky and, and Tennessee put it in, in their legislatures and their legislative findings, et cetera. They are about protecting minors from being subjected to gender affirming care, which they see as deleterious to, uh, and, and the nature should take its course. And when someone's an adult, obviously it's, it's different. They can make decisions about what they're gonna do, but when they're minors, we don't want their parents subjecting them to this. And we wanna regulate professional practice. We don't want our doctors prescribing these puberty blockers for this purpose or the cross sex hormones. Uh, and then there's a third issue. Uh, there's a privacy issue for the children. Do they have an autonomous right here? Also an interesting issue. It's, it's also an issue that comes up in the bathroom cases. Uh, Let's say you have a transgender boy and he's got an emergency, gotta to get to a restroom fast. The only gender neutral restroom in the school is way the heck at the other side of the building and the nurse's office or in the central administration. Why not just duck into a nearby boy's room? Well, if he's forbidden to go to the boy's room, so he has to go to the girl's room, if he's not gonna to go to the gender neutral room, he's outing himself right there. A boy's walking into the girl's room. And you think the girls are going to like someone who looks like a boy coming in there? Probably not. So, you know, they, he's, and, and, but the privacy issue is important there because uh, people want to live in the gender with which I identify. And if they transitioned or are transitioning, it upsets the apple cart to send them into the wrong path. But getting back to this case, the gender affirming care, uh, the interesting thing is uh, after the Sixth Circuit ruled in favor of the states on these, uh, I, I believe it was overturning preliminary injunctions. That's the state draft this litigation. The Biden administration weighed in and intervened and they filed their own petition, but they're only asking the court to take this up on the equal protection issue. equal protection right to the transgender uh, uh, people who want this uh, gender affirming care. And that's because they're trying to vindicate their position under Title IX and the Equal Protection Clause that it covers gender identity discrimination. 
they believe the Bostock's decisions reasoning carries over to Title IX and to the Equal Protection Clause. And so they're asking the court to grant cert only on that question. They're, they're fighting shy of asking the court to decide a new substantive due process case. <laughs> because who knows what will happen to parental rights if the court takes up the due process issue. And the, uh, the thing that distinguishes this cert petition from the others, the others were filed by the states. This one is being filed by the plaintiffs, by the representatives of the transgender people. And the, it's the ACLU, LGBTQ Rights Project, is in the lead here. And uh, there's been a bit of debate in the gay press, uh, and I use that word broadly, LGBTQ plus whatever press. Uh, there's been a lot of debate about whether it was a good idea for our side to bring this issue now to the Supreme Court. The answer that we're given is that thousands of transgender minors around the country are affected by this. And in the states where these laws have been passed, they could be required to detransition. People who have started on transitioning, people who are on puberty blockers are gonna to have to be taken off. People who are actually getting hormones, cross-gender hormones to uh, continue their transition are gonna to have to detransition in effect. Well, in many cases in school, can you imagine the psychological and physical turmoil of this? So this is why the preliminary injections are so important. The statutes are passed, they usually go into effect within a few months. If you get a preliminary injunction, people can continue with the gender affirming care they're receiving until the case is finally decided on the merits, which can be a long time, especially in a complicated case with heavily contested facts where you can have a lot of discovery. And then finally you go to trial and it's gonna be a lengthy trial with lots of expert witnesses on both sides. And then the judges are gonna take some time to make these decisions. And then all you'll have is a district court decision, which is gonna be immediately appealed by the losing side up to the court of appeals. So this could be years. You know how long civil litigation takes. It's not like the speedy trial after criminal law where you gotta move things or you're supposed to move things. In civil litigation, it can take a long time. Uh, so these preliminary injunctions are very important. And uh, the Supreme Court might take this one up. Now, in terms of the timing on these things, as I pointed out, the uh, Tingley case, the petition was filed last spring and it's been distributed at every conference of the court since the term began. For it to be argued this term, there would have to be a decision in favor of cert by mid to late January. That's about the latest because that starts the clock running on the filing of the principal brief and amicus briefs in support of the petitioner, and then the filing of a reply brief by the respondent. And then the petitioner has a right to reply to the respondent's brief, which means it's several months between the time a cert petition is granted and the time it's scheduled for argument. And it's not scheduled for argument until the briefing is completed. And it is not unusual for parties to request extensions of time on briefing. So uh, I would say uh, Tingley is the one that's most likely to hurt this term if the court grants cert between now and mid to late January. And January is usually the cutoff uh, because of the timing issue and the fact that the court likes to end its term by the end of June if possible. And they stop hearing oral arguments long before then. 
they stop hearing oral arguments usually in, in April, sometime in April, early May, uh, unless there's an emergency that, that calls them back to, to hear argument on something. There have been a few in the court's history. Uh, then the others, uh, in the other cases, uh, we have uh, requests by respondents for extensions of time to respond to the cert petitions. And until the responses are filed to the cert petitions, the file isn't complete. And the clerk doesn't circulate the file to the full court until it's complete. My understanding is the files are not going to be complete on these cases until sometime in January, most likely. Uh, which means that it's likely the court will make a cert decision until maybe February or March, which means it will be too late for argument this term. So if we get a case on LGBTQ issues directly in this term of the Supreme Court, it is likely to be the conversion therapy case. And the others are likely, if we get certs granted, most likely to be argued next term. Uh, I could be wrong on this, but it strikes me as sort of common sense that that's how it may play out. So that's what the, the year looks like. There's a lot of other important questions being argued at the court. Uh, I think uh, most particularly affecting us uh, because uh, at a time when one House of Congress is controlled by the Republicans and the other House by the Democrats, uh, the administration has a tough time getting its, uh, its proposals through Congress. And so they tend to rely more on administrative rulemaking and guidelines and things of that sort to try to advance the ball on things, including LGBTQ rights. And the Supreme Court has several cases in which uh, the court is being asked to cut back on the ability of administrative agencies to make rules and guidances and things of that sort. Uh, and in particular, there are two cases they've granted cert on uh, in which they are asked to overrule the Chevron decision under which federal courts are supposed to defer very heavily to the interpretation of statutes by the administrative agencies that are charged with enforcing them. Uh, and, and if Chevron is overturned, then we will have de novo review by federal courts of uh, challenges to regulations and guidelines. So we'll see what happens on that. That, that would really uh, be detrimental uh, when we have a democratic administration. Of course, when we have a Republican administration, it would be great. <laughs> if, if, uh, if Mr. Trump, God forbid, uh, I, we're supposed to be non-political here, but if Mr. Trump ends up in the White House in 2025, lots of regulations under, under the uh, Title VII regulations, under the Affordable Care Act, Title IX, a lot of things that we've been relying on uh, from the Biden administration may bite the dust very quickly. Uh, a lot of Obama guidelines and regulations were, were stopped or overturned during the Trump administration. Uh, so we'll see what happens on this. A lot of watchful waiting and fingers crossed. Well, I had some follow-up questions about timelines and predictions, but of course you have anticipated those and already answered them. So I won't pepper you with anything further on that. So thank you so much. It sounds like we probably won't have any updates on the Supreme Court front until early next year. Probably, yeah. 
Well, I understand there was a rather broad bathroom bill impacting all transgender, non-binary, and gender non-conforming public and charter school students grades K through 12 that was set to take effect on November 2nd, 2023. But tell us what happened instead in the Ninth Circuit. Okay, the uh, what happened was the district court in Idaho, this is in Idaho, uh, U.S. District Judge David Nye granted a temporary restraining order when the statute was first supposed to go into effect in Idaho. And this was like a broad sweeping uh, bathroom bill. Uh, but then after he heard briefing and argument on the preliminary injunction, he changed his mind. Uh, he said, look, I'm looking at what's happening in other circuits. I'm looking at uh, arguments about uh, Title IX and the degree it applies here. I'm looking at equal protection issues and I'm saying it's one thing to issue a TRO, but for a preliminary injunction, it's supposed to stay in, in effect until the case is decided on the merits. You've got to persuade me, plaintiff, you've got a really, really strong argument. You're very likely to win on the merits. And now I'm seeing there are courts going the other way on bathroom bills, right? We've got that 11th Circuit decision. Uh, we've got some district courts. Uh, so I'm thinking, this is an open question. This could go either way on the merits, which isn't enough to get you a preliminary injunction. For that, you have to persuade me that uh, you are very likely to win to get a preliminary injunction to stop a statute from going into effect. So I'm not going to issue you a preliminary injunction. Now, at the same time, the state had him file a motion to dismiss. And he said, look, I can't grant the motion to dismiss either because this could go either way. Motion to dismiss means I've looked at, at, the, uh, at the pleadings and based on the pleadings, they haven't stated a case. But they've surely stated a case because quite a few courts have said these bathroom bills violate Title IX and or the Equal Protection Clause. So... It's sort of in counterpoise there. I can't issue a preliminary injunction based on what I see, and I can't grant a motion to dismiss based on what I see. And so the statute goes into effect. And there's an emergency petition to the Ninth Circuit, and the Ninth Circuit panel votes two to one to stay the law, the enforcement of the law, pending a decision, which I think tells you a bit about what the Ninth Circuit judges are thinking. But we can't be sure because the three-judge panel that ruled on this isn't necessarily the three-judge panel that's going to rule on the merits ultimately in this case. And of course, uh, if the Supreme Court grants cert on the bathroom bill case from Indiana, if they grant cert on that one, all, all the lower federal courts generally sort of come to a standstill and say, we're going to put this case on hold until the Supreme Court rules. And if they grant cert in that case, who knows when it'll finally be decided. So we'll see. But it's interesting that we got a two to one uh, vote in this case uh, to basically issue an, a preliminary injunction by the Court of Appeals. But it's just a three judge panel. Uh, and uh, we've seen some interesting on-bank panels in the Ninth Circuit. Uh, re recall that among all the circuits, the Ninth Circuit is the only one for which on-bank doesn't mean the whole circuit because the whole circuit is too big. Can you imagine doing an oral argument before 27 judges? 
so they they have panels of 11. And supposedly the panels of 11 are drawn randomly from the judges of the circuit. But uh, I think we've already discussed this last uh, in the last podcast, but you know, maybe one of the articles that I'm thinking of in this issue that we had a Ninth Circuit on bank that was very oddly composed. It was overwhelmingly composed of Trump uh, appointees and other Republican judges, which is not reflective of the circuit. The majority of the judges in the circuit are Democratic appointees, uh, but a lot of senior judges had retired and Trump had a lot of openings to fill on the Ninth Circuit. Uh, so uh, you can get an on-bank panel that can be extremely conservative by Ninth Circuit standards. The Ninth Circuit has generally been seen in recent decades as a very progressive uh, liberal circuit. So we'll see what happens with this case. But the folks in Idaho, they're, they're pretty consistent to the legislature. They just want to sock it to transgender people in every which way. Uh, recall the, uh, they were one of the first out of the box to ban transgender girls from competing in sports. And that's the one thing we don't have a petition on at this point. You know, it, it seems to me like the big topics in transgender law right now are gender affirming care and bathroom access uh, to a lesser extent, uh, pronouns and things like that. That's that's also an issue. And some of these bathroom laws also, they drag the pronouns along with them. It's, it's really interesting to see what they come. I believe the Idaho statute does that. It says you can't discipline a teacher for calling someone by the wrong pronouns is pretty disrespectful to transgender students. So that's that on that. I think the Idaho bill also had a like a bathroom bounty, so to speak, that you yeah, could sue. People can sue. Just really, really the terrible. I, the idea is that it will be so traumatic for a cisgender student to wander into a restroom and come upon a transgender student that they should be compensated for their emotional distress and upset. Wow. Of course, for them to see anything that would be disturbing, they have to look in a closed stall. Well, at any rate. So we're talking a lot about the Ninth Circuit this month. And our next case, we're still staying in the Ninth Circuit, but moving to an entirely different area of law. I believe that there's an interesting custody case out of the yeah. Montana Supreme Court in this edition. Yeah, and it's not going to go to the Ninth Circuit. There's no federal issue. But it's, it's a very interesting family. Family. I mean, this is an unusual case. When I read this one, I immediately sent it to my colleagues who teach family law. And I said, this is exam question material. <laughs> okay, so there's this gay man from China named Yan Sun. And Yan Sun came to the United States in May 2017 on a student visa to uh, attend Auburn University's English language business program for international students. He's a gay man. He wants to be a father so much. He wants to have kids, not to adopt. He wants to have kids that are gonna be biologically related to him. Uh, and surrogacy is not available in China, certainly not for gay men. So he decides as long as he's in the US, let's look into surrogacy. And what's, what state has the, the most liberal laws on surrogacy and the most supportive, et cetera, is California pretty much. Connecticut's pretty good, California. 
he decides to go with a uh, surrogacy organization in uh, California, which is going to help him find a willing surrogate. Uh, he wants to do gestational surrogacy, not traditional surrogacy. He, he doesn't want this child to be biologically related to the surrogate because that sometimes results in complications, especially if the surrogate decides they don't want to give up the kid. And the surrogate is the child's biological mother uh, that you can run into problems. So uh, they, they locate a woman who lives in Billings, Montana, Megan Saylor. Who already has two kids. Uh, I don't believe anything is said about her marital status, whether she's a single mother or married, but she already has two kids. And when you're picking a surrogate uh, for traditional surrogacy, you want someone who has kids because that's proof that they're capable of conceiving. But also for gestational surrogacy, that's proof they're capable of bringing a pregnancy to term, which is itself an issue. So you're, you're looking for someone who has kids. And she was very willing to sign the gestational surrogacy contract, the, the form that was devised for the, uh, the firm in California that does this, under which she promises that upon the birth of the child, the child will be surrendered, she will do all cooperation that might be necessary in establishing the legal parentage of Yan's son, and she will not assert parental rights or attempt to interfere in any way. Okay. And the battle plan is that Yansun's mother is gonna come over from China and help him to take care of the kid while he's finishing up his graduate program at Auburn University in Alabama. Uh, so uh, donor sperm is obtained. Well, not donor sperm, donor egg is obtained. And uh, Yansun's sperm is uh, used to inseminate and uh, there's implantation in uh, Megan Saylor, who goes back to Billings, Montana, and everything's going great. And then it turns out that she's going to deliver prematurely several weeks before the Amazon's mother can come from China. And there's a further complication. This is happening in December 2019. What else is happening in December 2019 that might affect the ability of people to come from China to the U.S.? the COVID-19 epidemic. So what happens? Uh, she gives birth prematurely. Yan's son's mother is in China and can't get to the United States because once uh, the COVID thing starts erupting, it's you can't come from China to the United States. So uh, she gives birth before he can even get there from Auburn. That's how quickly it happened. Uh, he does get there. And uh, she makes no problem about surrendering the child, but uh, she offers to drive him home to the Airbnb that he's rented because he hasn't had time to really go up there and rent a place. His idea was he's going to get the kid and stay in a hotel and then go back to Auburn. But now his mother's not going to be there. And uh, she drives him to his Airbnb and she, and it, which was downtown at Billings. And she said, you don't want to be downtown here. This isn't a, a good neighborhood for you to be in with a child. She said, why don't you stay at my place for a while? Red flags should go up, but not yet. So she drives him to her place. And for a, a week or two, she's playing quite a role in co-parenting. Well, she's bonding 
with this child to which she gave birth, even though she's not biologically related, she has a maternal feeling for this child. And uh, his, he can't get his mother can't come over. You know, this is January now, and January of 2020, and COVID is starting to show up in the U.S. towards the end of the month, in the beginning of February. Things are getting complicated. Uh, it turns out he has a boyfriend. <laughs> And she knows about the boyfriend. She later claimed she didn't know he was gay at the time, but she knew about the boyfriend. She said, your friend can move here. We can, you can get an apartment here. And he got an apartment at Billings. And she said she would help him get admitted, transfer to a business program at the University of Montana in Billings. And within a few weeks, she was saying to him, and you know what? We should get married because if we get married, we can get you a green card. And when your student visa expires, you can stay in the United States as the spouse of an American citizen. And we've had a child together, you know. So, and he's, and he's proceeding without legal representation here. He doesn't get any independent representation. She goes to a lawyer who drafts up an agreement. The agreement recognizes her as having a parental relationship with the child. His boyfriend moves up to Billings, was living in California, moves to Billings. Uh, there's a lot of back and forth between the different homes. They finally decide it makes sense to get a big place where they can all live together. And as soon as they move in together, the relationship goes sour. And all of a sudden, he wants a divorce. And he wants custody of his child, naturally. And she says, it's in the child's best interest for me to have custody because I've been doing a big share of the parenting here and I'm bonded with this child. And we do have an agreement, a written uh, marital agreement, recognize that I have a parental relationship to the child. And of course, this was done by her lawyer. He was pro se at that time. Now he's in the divorce, now he's, he's represented finally. And uh, the trial judge decides that not relying on that premarital contract because generally contracts uh, with respect to child custody are void and against public policy. Uh, child custody disputes have to be decided by a judge or the parties have to negotiate something in the context of a drug force proceeding that the judge will approve. There has to be judicial approval that it's in the best interest of the child, because in the context of a divorce proceeding involving children, the court has a particular role of protecting the welfare of the child in the context of a divorce. Uh, so the judge decides it's in the best interest of the child to be with the surrogate, the mother, and for the father to have visitation. And the father says, just, just a minute. I mean, now he's got a lawyer. He says, I have constitutional rights here as a biological parent that are superior to any rights she has as a gestational surrogate. I should be the one with custody. And if it's in the best interest of the child, maybe she should get visitation, maybe not, it's up to the court. But he takes it to the Montana Supreme Court and the Montana Supreme Court agrees. Now Montana's agrees with him. Now Montana's law is such 
that in a dispute involving a biological parent and a third party, and she's considered a third party here because even though she married him, she never adopted the child. The child was born before the marriage and she's not biologically related to the child. Uh, so uh, under Montana law, in order for a third party to prevail in a custody dispute with a natural parent, quote unquote, a biological parent, you have to show that the biological parent has acted in ways inconsistent with their parental status. And it seems that the trial judge in his rush to decide this case never made any finding with respect to that, which is a statutorily required finding. Before you override his parental rights, you have to show that he's taken action that's inconsistent with his continuing parental status. And uh, this is where we get the one dissent. It's a six to one decision by the court. The dissenting judge says, well, the trial judge never made a finding on this. Shouldn't we be remanding for the trial judge to make a finding? But the majority said the mother was represented by counsel. They knew the statute. They had the statute. They saw that a finding would be necessary on this, and they never presented any evidence as to this. The question was never pushed before the trial judge, so the trial judge made no finding because there was no evidence. And that's it. They've waived. They didn't raise it, they've waived. They can't make this argument now. Uh, so it goes back to the trial judge and uh, the trial judge is ordered to uh, recognize the father as the sole legal custodian. And possibly there may be some further proceedings with respect to some visitation for the mother, but maybe not. Maybe they're gonna move back to Georgia, <laughs> who knows? Don't think she's going to give up billings for this. Who knows? You know, we, we can't predict what's going to happen after these decisions. But this decision is a very interesting decision, a very complicated situation. Lots of uh, very intricate stuff in the majority opinion. Uh, so anyone who's who's interested in reading a really, really interesting family law decision out of Montana, Sailor versus Son is the case. Uh, it's in the Pacific third uh, 536 Pacific third 399 so uh, this decision was from September 20th so by the time we're finished with the with the combined October November issue we actually had a West site for it not from Westlaw but from Pacific Reporter and it's always amazed me that Montana is in the Pacific Reporter how far away is Montana from the coast Well, Thank you. you know, I'm, I'm one of those supporters who say, break up the Ninth Circuit, it's too big. And now that it's so conservative, I'd rather see it split up. A fascinating case and apologies to any law students out there that took Professor Leonard, or law professors that took Professor Leonard's advice and put that on their final exams. We know it's exam season, so we hope all our law students are doing well. And apologies to any students who are seeing a familiar fact pattern like this pop up on exams. Well, those are our main cases for today, but I think we have just a little bit of time left. Do you have anything of note for us? Yeah. Uh, one thing that uh, we report on in this issue is Federal district judges in two different districts of Texas have taken opposing views on the First Amendment status of drag shows. 
So just, just to very briefly go into this, uh, one of them is Matthew Kaczmarek, which has to be a familiar name by now, a Trump appointee who is, uh, as, they, as, as the saying goes, to the right of Genghis Khan, uh, especially on gay issues. And uh, this was a case in which the president of West Texas A&M University vetoed a planned drag show on the campus, uh, saying that uh, uh, th this was a drag show that's held every year to raise funds for a charitable organization that works on preventing suicide. I mean, it's a, a very noble cause. Uh, and he says, well, I, I, don't, I don't approve of drag and I think it's demeaning to women, it's trades on stereotypes, et cetera, et cetera. I will not allow it to happen on my campus, even though it's happened on this campus before. Uh, so he gets sued by the organization that was going to put on the show. And Judge Kajmanarik says, I don't see any First Amendment issue here. I think he has a right to ban the drag show on the campus. Uh, at the same time, of course, Texas had issued, had uh, adopted a new statute, SB 12, ban on public drag shows, among other things. Uh, and it was, of course, uh, challenged in court uh, a, a Woodlands, Texas has a gay pride organization. They were planning their annual gay pride festival. There was going to be a drag show. And uh, they felt that they had to get an injunction against uh, the application of this law because they were being threatened by local law enforcement or something. They couldn't have this drag show. Uh, and the case is in the Southern District of Texas. Kaczmarek is in the Northern District of Texas. Judge David Hitner, a senior U.S. District Judge an appointee of President Ronald Reagan. Isn't it hard to believe that there are still Reagan appointees sitting on the bench? Uh, so, you know, you get some 80, 85 year old judge, even older than President Biden. And, and he said, look, First Amendment, this is, this is theater. This is freedom of speech, drag shows. Now, obviously if the drag show is gonna do some obscene stuff or there's gonna be naked sex acts perform on stage that's a different story obscenity is not protected by the first amendment but a drag show i mean drag is about overdressing right not underdressing i mean naked drag is a contradiction in terms i would think so you know he he says this is expressive conduct it's, it's uh, protected uh it's not necessarily lewd or obscene and in fact uh, it can be very family friendly, like drag show story time in children's libraries. So here we have two district judges, two different districts in Texas, both in the Fifth Circuit, of course, which is a very, very conservative circuit. So we'll see what happens with these cases, but taking opposite positions on whether the First Amendment requires protection here. Uh, since uh, West Texas A&M is a public school the First Amendment applies to the president's decisions. And uh, of course, uh, the statute, the state statute is subject to the First Amendment as well by incorporation through the 14th Amendment to the states. So we'll see what happens here. Uh, maybe we're gonna have a collision at the Fifth Circuit with these two cases, uh, but they're both recent enough that uh, they haven't gone too far yet. Uh, Kaczmarek's decision was on September 21st and Judge Hittner's decision was on September 26th. So that's my of note. Well, the fight to protect drag always continues. Yes. Um, 
Thank you again for pointing out that it can be a very family-friendly form of art. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you as always to our listeners. This year, we hit over 235,000 total downloads over the lifetime of our Humble program. We know you're out there and we appreciate you. Please continue to like, share, and find us on Apple Music, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you listen to your favorite programs. Terrific.